Good evening to my listeners. You are listening to the Fierce Igbo Women's Initiative podcast with your host, Ugochi Onyewu. Welcome to the show. Welcome to this podcast where we interview Igbo women and friends of Igbo culture from different walks of life. How is everyone doing? I know it's been a while since the last episode, but these are challenging times. And I do hope that this episode brings you some comfort and relief. Please know that I have my audience in my prayers and thoughts. Today's discussion is with Adakwebo. I honestly forgot we were recording a podcast because I found this discussion to be so interesting. Adako has led such an interesting full life and what I love so much is that she has lived life on her own terms. Adako Uche is a consultant to non-profit organizations in the areas of youth program development, business development, fundraising, board development and non-profit management. She has over 10 years of experience as both staff and board member of a variety of non-profit organizations. She headed up business development for the American Bar Association's Rule of Law Initiative and was Deputy Director Advancement at the Atlantic Council, a leading foreign policy think tank. Also for over seven years, managed junior achievements, funding and strategic relationships with bilateral and multilateral donors. She holds an MA in Nonprofit Government Administration from the University of Pennsylvania and a JD from Ohio State University's Moritz College of Law. We discuss Adako's childhood with a father who raised her to be a feminist and to never put up with anything that she did not want to put up with. We talk about Adako's journey to her current career and move from the United States back to Nigeria. I love Adako's definition of success as being fully present in whatever season you are in. You are in for such a treat. Good morning, Adaku. How are you doing? I'm good. Good morning. Good afternoon from my end here. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining. Um, we'll kick it off. I, w- I know the audience would love to hear a little bit about who you are, you know, so maybe talk to us a little bit, just free format. Tell us who you are, where you're from, what part of Igbo land, where you were born, what was it like growing up in an Igbo household with Igbo parents? Just talk to us a little bit about who you are. Okay, sure. So my name is Adako Mwadilto Eko. Yes, so I'm married to somebody, I'm married to Francis Eko, who is from Akwaibom State. So I guess technically I am now also from Akwaibom. I'm not dropping my, my Abia states. Uh, my both my parents are from Abia states. Mm. Both of them are from they're from Isialangwa, South Isialangwa South. Mm. Uh, different villages, but same local government. Mm. My parents were in school in the U.S. when they met and got married, which is where my brothers and I were all born. Mm. But we all came back. We came back to Nigeria when we were very young, so I don't really, I don't really count it as. Um, I can't really say I spent any time in the U.S. when I was a child. Mm. We uh, first we spent few years in Kaduna, then we grew up really, really grew up in Lagos. 
our childhood was, in my opinion, pretty sheltered. I used to tell people, yes, I grew up in Lagos, but now that I'm older, I realize that it's better and it's a fairer statement to say we grew up on the University of Lagos campus, which, as it turns out, is quite different <laughs> from the rest of Lagos, at least that it was. Um, I don't think we realized how sheltered and how lucky we had it growing up on mm. campus. Mm. But that was, that, was our, that was our setup. That was our, um, our environment. Mm. As for growing up with evil parents, it was pretty, I would say, a little mixed. My dad, I have three brothers. I'm the only girl. There are four of us. And um, I think my dad was very, very liberal in many ways, in, in some untypical or atypical Igbo ways. He was, he was very, very liberal. So my father was not one of those people that said, my first, his first son is going to get everything or something like that. He was very, very equity focused. So mm. he started from a very young age telling us things like, you know, <laughs> everything's going to be shared between all of you. There's nothing like one person gets it all. Um, in Ngwaland, you are supposed to call your senior brother, Dede, mm. and your senior sister, either Adane or Da. Yes. My father absolutely banned us from doing that. Mm. He did not like it. He said, if you, those things don't necessarily signify respect. Mm. Um, mm. Um, that if you respect somebody, you respect somebody. But that when you obsess over, you know, showing respect by the labels, mm. sometimes you don't actually focus on the respect part, part of it. So we didn't do that. Mm. So I think in, in those ways, the our evilness was different, very, very different from even our cousins. So, mm-hmm. you know, when I'm with our cousins, I have to remember this person is dating. <laughs> Can't be calling him. <laughs> Just because in my house, we're calling everybody, everybody's the same thing. Does not mean you carry that word outside. <laughs> so, so in, in, in that respect, um, Hey, my parents were quite liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, they were, they were, they were different. Mm-hmm. Um, the things that they taught us, the way they taught us. My dad was was not a feminist in general, but he was a feminist to me. Hmm. Um, so, and and I'm not sure that that's such a unique thing for most people, but I think it was unique for our Igbo household because I. I men are not by any stretch of the imagination uh, feminist yes. or feminist inclined across the board. Yes. Mm-hmm. But my dad was very much so mm. for me and it mm. really defined me mm. uh, especially on a subconscious level. Mm. Um, I can't say I can't really pinpoint but if I were to pinpoint my father bought me so long a letter um, by Mariam Abba when I was in primary four. Hmm. Hmm. I read this book and I did not under, fully understand it because I, I think that some of the concepts were a bit advanced for an eight or nine-year-old. And I read it and he asked me, what did I think of it? And I said, you know, I think it was unfair. 
the way the man's the way the the lady was treated for people that don't know Merima Ba's book um, so long a letter was about a, 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 a husband and wife who had sort of come up in progressive Senegal um, during the pre and immediate uh, post-independence movement mm. and they thought they were progressive they were a Muslim family and so the lady was actually quite surprised when few years down the road, her husband decided to take another wife. And I believe the second wife was her daughter's friend or something. Wow. Okay. Yes. Hmm. So this book was uh, pretty significant in African literature because it was written by a woman. And it was written a long time ago. I want to say the 50s or the 60s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My dad just said to me, well, just, I wanted you to read this book so that you know that you never have to put up with anything you don't want to put up with. Love it. Yeah. I was eight. I didn't get it. Or nine. I didn't get it. I didn't understand. I just, I just read the book and thought, this seems unfair. Mm. Later on, much year, years later on, I reread it and I was like, wow. I mean, my dad is pretty ahead of his time. Mm. Um, and I think that that mindset shaped me, you know, once... I became an adult and started dating. It really, really shaped how I went about my relationships. Mm. So it's really hard to say that um, that we had a traditional Igbo household. Mm. There were goods, of course, there was positive and there was negative. But all in all, I think we had we had a pretty balanced. We had a, 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 an upbringing that prepared us to survive anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is interesting. I love how you've kicked this off because obviously your father was, first of all, your father was a boss. Love it. Love it. I mean, I love the way he instilled in you that sense of who you are. And I'm curious though, you know, did he, because obviously you were the only girl and he kind of instilled in you this sense of you don't have to put up with um, things that you don't have to. I'm just curious as to whether he raised the boys that way or if he identified, clearly he was ahead of his time. Or if mm-hmm. he kind of knew, this is my only daughter, let me kind of treat, let me kind of raise her in this special way to have this strong sense of who she is. Do you see where I'm going? I'm just curious as to whether he had a unique approach to all four of you, or if it was particularly because you were a girl. Does that make sense? Yes, it was both. He did mm-hmm. both. Mm-hmm. So my, my mom is pretty traditional. She's a traditional African woman. Mm. I would say my mom is now 70. I would say that my mother has always been open-minded. So, you know, when my dad would say, let's say my mom would call me, I I, I always remember, we'd go to the village. Okay, we were a typical Igbo family. We went to the village every single Christmas (laughs) and every other Easter. Mm. And when we would come back to Lagos, we would unpack and maybe I would go crash try and sleep. My mother would be like, auntie, please come to the kitchen. We have to cook. <laughs> and my dad would say, eh, one of the boys should follow you and join. And my, mom, my mom's attitude was, that's, that's all well and good. We, the boys can come in and help. That's wonderful. Mm. But this madam still has to learn how to cook because that's the way the world is. Mm. Mm. So my mom was open-minded in the sense that, you know, she... She bought into it, making sure my brothers were also exposed. Everybody did chores, cleaned, cooked. We had a timetable. Mm. 
mm. uh, a bunch of picky eaters. So I think when me, when I was about 11, my mom's like, I'm done. I'm done with you people and your picky eating. Mm. Here's the timetable. This is the food timetable. And then this is the cooking timetable. Mm. So my older brother and I used to alternate cooking. My immediate junior brother is just a perfect gentleman. And he didn't need to be motivated or taught. In fact, till today, he's the one that, does a lot of the baking if we're all together he's an awesome bake but i think everybody ran out of steam by with my youngest brother <laughs> so it's just it was like he resisted and everybody was like you know what whatever so just do what you want yeah just like whatever so so but but before they ran out of steam with him i would say that my both my friends did a very good job mm. with making sure all of us yeah. where we did the house chores, we mm. did cooking, and, and it was it was pretty evenly distributed. Now, with all that being said, I, I said earlier my dad was only a feminist to me. It was mm. it wasn't <laughs> a feminist <laughs> to my mother or any other <laughs> woman in, in his family. So I think my brothers picked up on that because I, I would say out of my three brothers. One is very, very traditional in, in every sense of the word. The other is very, very progressive. And then mm. the other one is half and half. Mm. Mm. So I think that um, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how the things you say. At the end of the day, the kids are going to pick up on things you do. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. So, even though my dad and my dad, I think he, he, you know, my parents were very educated. My father had a PhD in um, journalism from the Ohio State University. My mother had a master's in English and journalism from the Ohio State University. And my dad was, was a very learned scholar. He was a mm. Fulbright fellow. Mm. So he, my father was very, very self-aware. Mm. Mm-hmm. So yes, he, he knew, he knew that, that there were discrepancies. And he would be like, listen, the <laughs> ship has sailed with my generation. Mm. I'm just telling you, it, it doesn't have to be this way for you. Mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. So, so it, was, it was a mixed bag. Yeah. But all in all, at, at the end of the day, I think it worked out for me. No, I love this. I, I really do. And I think even to, to the point where you said your father wasn't necessarily a feminist with others but he was with you i love how you said how your your brothers some one is very progressive one is very traditional one's kind of half and half i think i will say that i do believe that because of the way that your household was <laughs> even though one is still very traditional i know that in his he probably is aware, right? Because your yeah. father, even yeah. though your father, you're saying, you know, he, he didn't necessarily do what he said. I think he also did, if that makes sense, right? So the mix back to your point, but I, I love how, and I'm going to go off on a tangent, but I really do love how you, you said that your dad would send one of the boys to go cook with your mother as well as you, right? Let one of the boys go yeah. as well. And I think, you know, in, especially in this generation, I know our, the ship has sailed for maybe partly our generation, our parents' generation, but the, the next generation coming up, we cannot raise boys to, to have specific roles and women to have specific mm-hmm. roles. It just will not work, right? First of all, my boys will not be able to self-manage if they go out in the world and they don't know. Yeah. It's just a different world. So I love that. 
But coming yeah. back to your family, which just sounds awesome, by the way, um, you yeah. talked about going to the village every Christmas and every other Easter. Would you say that yeah. Christmas in the village stands out to you as one of the, I guess, the most favorite memories of Igbo culture, which I guess is the way that you were exposed to it because you grew up in Lagos and you were born in the U.S.? So would you say that Christmas in the yes. village is a strong memory for you or was it, was it a traditional Igbo Christmas or was it just, you know, one of those things you had to do? I would say maybe the first 10 years of my life, it was, it was the highlight of my year. And, mm. and growing up in Lagos, the rest of my school friends just thought it was absolutely nuts that we were excited about going to the village. And I think when I grew up, I realized that the village... The definition of village is, <laughs> it's on a spectrum. <laughs> For some people, village is a mud hut. <laughs> yes. But I think, I don't think that many people realize that for the average Igbo family, <laughs> the village is where you really lay your roots down. Mm-hmm. You build a comfortable house. Mm-hmm. you surround yourself with your extended family that you trust and you lift up your extended family. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, it wasn't like some backwater place. Um, for us, the village was where our bicycles were. My dad, my mother, the first thing they did when they came back from the U S was they took all, they took all their savings from working in the U S and the first thing they did was build a house in the village and they furnished the house and over a few Christmases, they bought us bicycles. So for us, going to the village was our bicycles, you know, because we didn't have the bicycles in, in the city with us in Lagos. Mm-hmm. There was our chance to ride the bicycles, and there was lots of wide open spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a chance to eat and eat and see cousins and just, just run around. And they had done such a good job in creating a safe space for us because um. When my parents built their house, there was a, there was a garden that used to, I used to go in there. It wasn't just even like a little patch of garden space. It was like, a, at least for us then, we could have adventures. We could yeah. go in there and reenact things. And there was no electricity, but we had a generator. But the generator was only on from, you know, four hours a day. Yeah. So when, when the generator went off, we turn on the lamps. And um, we would do improv. My dad was big on improv. So my dad would tell us, you know, just act a play. So for us, at the early stages of our childhood, the village was a lot of fun. It was where we got to act. It was where we got to ride our bicycles. Mm. It was where we played endlessly. Nobody's going to ask you to read your assignment or do any homework. It was where we got to eat. Um, it was where we got to drink palm wine. All, all our memories from the village was just fun. It was just, it was bike riding. It was acting. It was eating. It was drinking palm wine and it was hanging out with cousins. So I think just the fact that everybody did it. Our cousins came home for Christmas. That even made it doubly fun. Yeah. So for us, now, when I got older, it got a little bit more hectic because then you couldn't escape the cooking because every, you had an endless stream of visitors coming in mm. and there was a point in time where my mom is like, I'm not hiring help anymore. You kids are old enough to help me. Yeah. So the village became less fun. 
um, <laughs> and, and we had a dog. We had, um, we had a German shepherd. Mm. So we were, we were very odd in the sense that we used to travel from Lagos to the village. Four of us in my dad's Peugeot mm. with the dog. Four kids in the back with this huge dog. Mm-hmm. So for us, it was, it, was, it was fun. And then the dog died. Oh. And then we actually started having chores. Mm. Um, so it became less fun, but mm. still the seeds have been sown. Yeah. And even now, last year, two of my brothers came back from the U.S. Because my three brothers still live in the U.S. Mm. Two came back for Christmas. They, I think they were in Lagos and Abuja for like, a day or two, I went straight to the village. Mm. Spent the whole Christmas in the village with some of our other cousins. Mm. So it's, that seed was sown for yeah. us. And the village will always mean something deep, deep, deep to us. Yeah, I love it. I do love that. That's awesome. 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 Because some of us uh, don't have such pleasant memories of Christmas in the village. I mean, we loved the, the <laughs> Christmas in the village, but... I hated that travel from Lagos to Awari over, over that, um, that bridge between Asaba and yes. Oh, gosh. You know, yes. so, yeah, but, yes, but fun, fun memories. So did you go to high school in Nigeria? I mean, I met you in the U.S. So talk us through getting yes. to the U.S. Where did you go to high school? Where did you go to college? And then we'll kind of segue into that. So I went to secondary school on the University of Lagos campus. Oh, right. <laughs> okay. um, so, so there are some people that went to primary school, university campus, secondary school, university campus, and then they went to the same university. Mm-hmm. So luckily, I, I broke free after secondary school. <laughs> so, so, um, uh, so I went to secondary school in Lagos, University of Lagos campus, international school, Lagos. I, 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 it's hard to say because I think, I don't know if secondary school is supposed to be fun. <laughs> so <laughs> it, was, it was a mixed bag for me. You know, sometimes it was traumatic just because it was a normal teenage drama. Sometimes it was barely pleasant because Nigerian educational system is, not, is, not, is built for, for children that are really good at memorization and regurgitation. Yes. And, <laughs> and I'm not one of those people. I am a very, I'm a dreamer. There were many times I sat, I was physically in the class, but I was not, I was not even in the same planet as the teacher. So I, I was definitely one of those students that studied, studied to be promoted. I did not understand half of what was going on. I just, my goal was to just get promoted and just mm. get it over and done with. Yeah. I don't think I, I, because I just, I just, I just didn't get it. I just mm. didn't get it. So, so school was a mixed bag and I just kept my head down because my dad was a lecturer mm. on campus and my dad was a larger than life personality. So <laughs> my goal was to be under the radar enough so mm. that it didn't, he didn't, he wasn't being called because if they called my parents to school, my dad was the one that was closest to the school. Mm-hmm. My mom worked farther in Lagos, so he would be the person that showed up, and that was just something that you know, at that age of every single thing your parents did, just <laughs> it was an embarrassment. Yes, and my goal was to make sure that it, like, if we had PTA meetings, I, didn't, I wouldn't tell them. I just wouldn't tell them <laughs> so, so, that, uh, so that there was limited uh, uh, 
presence for them in the school. So secondary school was not that much fun. I did get admitted to University of Lagos to study law. And I don't know how to put it, whether it was... So the plan was always, you do your first degree in Nigeria, and then you go to the US and you do your master's. Mm. We had... Sani Abacha was the dictator. He was supposed... That was the period where we were supposed to have democratic elections. We had them. The results were thrown out the door. Long story short, he shut down universities for about a year. Wow, I remember. And, yeah. yeah, and this was when we didn't have private universities. All the universities were state government or federal government. So mm. shut it down. And so I sat at home for a year after secondary school. And in that year, I did SAT, you know, so we were just getting ready for any eventuality. Mm. I did the SAT. I also took computer classes. So at the end, my dad is like, you know what? Even though the universities are about to be open, it, just, it doesn't look good. This guy, we don't know what's going on with him. So you need to head out of the country. Mm. And by this time, my older brother had already left. My older mm. brother left Nigeria probably when he was 13 or 14. Mm. He was just having a hard time in school. So my parents thought, look, it's much better for you to go to the U.S. and stay with my mom's brother and see if things, are, things get easier. And it did for him. So my older brother was already in college. My parents were like, yeah, just, just go. This changes all our plans, but just go. Mm-hmm. So I and my dad was like, my father had gone to undergrad in the U.S. Mm-hmm. He had gone to, and when my dad went to undergrad was during the Nigerian Civil War. And um, the school he had gone to for undergrad was a school that was then owned by the Presbyterian Church. Mm. So he had gotten a scholarship from the Presbyterian Church and gone to the school that had a population of, I think when he went there, maybe the population was 200 students. Wow. The school in the mountains of North Carolina, in the, I would say about 30 minutes from Asheville, North Carolina. Mm. And it's... You know, in America, there are schools for every conceivable type of person and personality. So <laughs> this school is a school, belongs to a group of sister schools known as work-study schools. Now, I hated every second in that school. Well, not every second, but most of it. But I would say that, <laughs> I'd say that today, I, I, I totally buy into the concept of work-study. So work-study was not an option. I think a lot of schools have work-study. In this school, it was not an option. Every student worked. Every student did community service. Mm. So if you didn't didn't work the, I think the hours where you had to work 15 hours a week, then you had a certain number of hours of community service each semester. So if you didn't work, if you didn't show up and do the work you were assigned to, you got a bill at the end of the semester. Hmm. So the school didn't have janitorial staff. The students were the janitorial staff. Oh, we wow. did the dishes. It was a farm. If anybody here listening to this knows what a hippie is, yes, this was a hippie school. Hmm. So when my father went to the school, it was not a hippie school. It was like a missionary college. So somewhere along the line, it became a, a, just a home for hippies, a place where kids that were inclined towards, you know, 
living on the closer to earth, farm to fork, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> if it's there, it's the school that they gravitated towards. Mm. But my parents didn't know this. And they told us, we're sending you to the US. I think all of us went to college when we were 17, going on 18. Mm. And my dad was like, we're sending you to college. We don't want you to go to higher states, too big, too many students there, you get lost. So we're sending you to the school. And that's it. In fact, that was the only school any of us was allowed to apply to. Mm. Yes, it was so annoying because I really wanted to go to Oberlin College. Mm. But my father, no, you are going to, um, I'm not going to say the name of the school. (laughs) 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 I'm going to do free advertising for them. (laughs) In Swannanoa Valley, the Black Mountains of North Carolina. Wow. <laughs> when we got there, the student population was 400. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Up to bottom. And, and I think maybe the staff population was like 80. Wow. So yes. Um, I don't know how many hectares the school is on, but it was, a, it was big. Everywhere was uphill or downhill. And out of the 400 students, maybe we were about 25 international students. (laughs) And what was always interesting was the, maybe there were like three African-Americans at any given point in time. So they always joined international students because because everybody else just seemed weird to all of us. And we just said, how did we get here? Yeah. You know? Because all the international students were coming from major cities, mm. you know. They were coming from the, there were lots of Kenyans, they were all coming from Nairobi. Yeah. The Nigerians were all coming from Lagos, or mm. um, I think we had one person that came from Portacot, but everybody mm. was coming from Lagos. Um, you know, and then we had a spatching of other Africans, but all of us came from uh, major cities. Mm. Even the Asian kids, they mm. all came from. And we would all sit down there going, trading stories of, how did you get here? How wow. Wow. did you find this place? Um, and we made the best out of it uh, because we just, we just did. Some people transferred and then the rest of us that decided to hang in there, we, we made the best out of it uh, because it was, for us, it was a culture shock on multiple levels. The Bill Cosby show and the different world, that was my idea of college in America. I had no, I had no idea that that it was a concept of a college so small and mm. so secluded and so mm. intentional about what they were trying, the values they were trying to impart. You know, they wanted us to embrace the concept of work ethic, of giving back constantly, um, and of understanding your environment. And I think they accomplished that, no matter how much. It annoyed the vast majority of us. I think every single one of us walked away from that school with a sense of a sense of awareness of what our environment is like. And we left. So for me, um, I left. I graduated and moved on to other things and other mm. places. Mm. Yeah. So now, did you move on from there straight to law school? How did that work? So the typical... African parents. In fact, I would say the typical immigrants. 
you don't really have these options of, you know, what do you want to grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? It was, then it was your options are lawyer, doctor, <laughs> engineer, architect, accountant. Pharmacist. <laughs> pharmacist. And then a nurse, right? Nurse was depending <laughs> on when you came to America. You know, so it was like, look, you don't do, you don't like science. So you're going to be a lawyer. End of discussion. So I think, so after, after undergrad, I took the LSAT and I got admitted to a couple of, of law schools. And I really wanted to go to University of Miami Law School because I had gone to Miami for a Habitat for Humanity project, a spring break project. And I loved it, loved it, loved it. So I said, I'm going to University of Miami Law School. I got in. And so after college, I drove up to university. I drove off to uh, Miami from North Carolina. And I got to Miami, got to the law school, and my spirit just said, no, don't do this. I decided to defer my admission for a year. Mm. And in that year, I got a job, lived in Miami, hated it. Wow. Absolutely hated it. Miami was hands down probably the most, the most experience I had with every form of ism you can think of. Wow. Hmm. Uh, um, the, 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 I would say the most interesting thing was it wasn't even, the, the racism did not impact me as much as the anti-Semitism. That bothered me more because I had never, I'm not Jewish, hmm. I'd never witnessed it. But it was so casual and it permeated everything. It bothered me. So I didn't enjoy it. So I'm really glad that I, I took the year off. Um, I, had a, I had a relatively good job. And so I learned, I learned a lot at that job and I worked. Um, but it was Miami was intense because there are lots of immigrants in Miami and the immigrants have a hierarchy. Hmm. So... And at the top are the, the Cubans. And it was like the, the white-looking Cubans and then the other Cubans. And then, you know, you just went down. And I think at the bottom, the bottom of the list was like Jamaicans okay. Jamaican slash Haitians slash Nigerians. Just depending yes. on, you know, depending on the time and the season or whatever, whatever was going on. Or actually, I would say the bottom of the list was Haitians slash Jamaicans slash Africans mm. Mm. together. And it was very, very difficult to see black people outside of lower paying jobs. Mm. Hmm. So that was, that was, it was so odd to me because when I lived in North Carolina, I had gone and traveled around to DC I had gone and spent a lot of time in Atlanta. So these are places where you see black professionals mm. and professionals of color. So just, just Miami was just weird. I was just like, I don't, I don't, have, I don't want to be mm. here because this is just, I don't have the, I don't have the energy. There's nothing that's holding me mm. here enough to justify trying to figure out how to fit into this, this structure. Mm. So after a year, I bolted, um, <laughs> And I, 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 I can't remember if I, I think I did the SL SATs again. Mm. And I got into um, a couple of universities, including Ohio State, which mm. is where my parents 
had gone. Mm-hmm. Um, because at least I still had family in Columbus, Ohio. And I got in and I, and I moved. did the same thing. I drove. Um, that was one of the things I really loved about America was the fact that you could drive everywhere. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I, I definitely did a lot of road trips. I did road trips with friends. Sometimes I did road trips for myself. So I drove from, actually, I put my car on a train. I put my car on a train. And the train, I think, took us all the way from Florida to Pennsylvania. Hmm. And then when I got to Pennsylvania, I drove to Columbus, Ohio. And then I did law school there for, for three years. And that, that, was, that was intense. Law school in the U.S. is very intense. As they say, it was what it was. <laughs> you learn, you learn about how to think. I think that's what law school in America teaches you. It teaches you how to think. Mm-hmm. It doesn't so much teach you how to actually practice law, like the, mm-hmm. the actual rudimentals of practicing law. Things like this is how you file mm-hmm. motions and things right. like. Right. Yeah, you learn those things in the law firm, but they teach you the bigger picture things: how to think. Hmm. how to speak, how to marshal your arguments, how to write in a very succinct way. Um, I think one of the things I learned is that for a lot of Commonwealth countries is about verbosity, just using big words. I think Americans are the complete opposite. Yes. (laughs) It's keep it as simple as possible, but Deliver, deliver your arguments with gravitas, whether mm. it's written gravitas or your presence. Mm. And I think that that's one of the reasons why you have law shows that are, I don't, I don't, you, I, it's hard to find, you know, law shows from Australia or, or the United Kingdom, but mm. America is full of them because that's, that's the culture that they promote in law yeah. school. Yeah. No, that's so interesting. This is also very, very interesting. So, you know, of course you and I met and I know that you also have an MBA. So, and I know that you didn't do it at the same time. I thought you did, but you, you told me obviously that you didn't. So I'm just curious as to after law school, what made you go on to the MBA? And then maybe we can segue into how you're using both those skills and talk about your move back to Nigeria, which is interesting. Yes. So it's actually a master's in public administration. So after, yes, uh, I would say the first semester of law school, I realized I had no desire to be a lawyer. In, the, in any way, shape, or form. I did not want to go to um, the courtroom. I did not want to be drafting contracts. I just realized it wasn't for me. But we're Africans, we don't drop out. I did not send you to school across the ocean for you, for you to be having a moment, but like, you know, I don't think this is for me. <laughs> We don't have those kinds of conversations. Uh, I'm, I'm looking for myself. <laughs> just find yourself and get on with it. There's no option. Yeah, yes. You know, you just can't, you can't say I'm trying to find my, where you lost. You know, these like conversations you don't have with your friends or quite frankly with yourself. So I just, I, I broached it with my parents. I think I actually went went home for the holidays and I, and I worked in Lagos and I broached it with my friends and they were like, 
you play too much. <laughs> you, got, you got jokes. <laughs> so, the conversation was, I don't know, negative, negative 30 seconds. <laughs> we went back and I pushed through <laughs> graduate law school. Um, but since, I was, since I had realized this is not, this is not for me. And I actually gave it my best shot. I, I worked at a law firm. I got a job at a law firm my first summer and I split my summer. I did the um, work. It was a small law firm. I worked with them, learned how to write memos, went to court a couple of times. So I, I, every time I went, I was like, okay, okay. Yeah. This really isn't for me. I, I genuinely don't enjoy doing these things. I even did mediation. I participated in mediation things and I did everything. I participated fully to make sure that I wasn't making some kind of snap judgment. And so once I realized it's really not for me, even, you know, even I think a lot of people go to law school with this dream of, I want to be an international human rights lawyer, which yeah. <laughs> I always do my best not to laugh when people tell me this because mm. I don't, I actually, I actually don't know what that means mm. right now. Even that I thought about it and I'm like, nope, that's, it's, it's sort of BS. So let me not even try that. Mm. So, um, I started looking for what I wanted to do. And luckily for me, all the jobs I had every summer of law school, helped me figure out that I wanted to enter the nonprofit sector at the international level, mm-hmm. but definitely not as a human rights lawyer or whatever that is. <laughs> so I started trying to figure out what were the things I needed to know, what were the skills I needed to have, mm-hmm. and how do I package myself? Because having a law degree makes you tremendously overqualified for entering the nonprofit sector at the ground level. Hmm. You know, everybody hmm. that I, I did informational interviews with, they were just like, look, we like you, but there's no way you're coming in here with these law school loans and you're going to stay. Yeah. You are not, you are going to bail. Hmm. Because it's a lot of work, a lot, little money, and your skill set is way above what is required. Hmm. So, so I kept thinking, thinking, and I thought, okay, I'm going to go back to school and do a master's in, not in public policy. Hmm. Um, and I went to, but I was not going to go full time. Hmm. I didn't want to go full time because I felt that that would just um, defeat my defeat the purpose yes. for me. Yes. I really wanted to to work. Yeah. So I really hustled. I right after maybe a week after I graduated law school, I got a job offer with an NGO, a local nonprofit in the state of Delaware. And how I got this job was, you know, I wrote them a very convincing cover letter. And this is one of the things that I really feel that American law schools are good with. Mm. I, they teach you how to be a good storyteller. And I feel mm. like I did that mm. very well mm. my cover letter don't worry about my law degree it's taught me how to think it's taught me how to do this and that Mm. and they invited me for the interview and I showed up for the interview with a PowerPoint presentation Mm. showing them how I was taking how I take the skills from law school some of the things I had done um, prior to that 
and translate it to the work required. You know, and they made me the offer. And um, yes, it was crap money, but I absolutely loved the job. Mm -hmm. So once I started the job, I started looking for a master's program that allowed me to, um, to work and still go to school. Mm -hmm. And because of where I was located, I think I applied to University of Delaware and I also applied to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And mm -hmm. Philadelphia is probably, depending on traffic, 45 minutes to uh, an hour and a half away from Wilmington, Delaware. Mm -hmm. So I got into um, UPenn, Fells mm -hmm. Institute of Government, um, where I did my master's. And I used to go, I think it was Fridays and Saturdays. can't remember if we had some Sunday classes, but mm -hmm. it was pretty much, I would get to Philly probably about five in the five thirty six in the morning and i'd be there till probably 5 p.m and if there was some networking we did we did i had some evening classes on fridays so sometimes i'd spend the night um so it was lots of driving sometimes i took the train so that's what i did i did my masters and it was great because i learned on the job i learned mm -hmm. how to write proposals i learned how to write budgets how to analyze budgets mm -hmm. none of the things you learn in law school mm. I, um you know how to start a nonprofit. if you go into the public sector how to maneuver working in a public agency mm. so for me it was it was it was probably my best um educational experience wow. even though it was part-time because mm. it was so practical I was applying it as I was learning. So I think for me, that's one of the reasons why it was so, so impactful. Mm. And my classmates were in the same position. Everybody was working, with very few exceptions. So it was, we really got the chance to put into practice the things that we were learning. And so for me, that was a very, very pleasant experience. And then I went from that, I think shortly after I finished that degree, I got a job offer still with the NGO I worked with but it was to transfer to do international development stuff mm -hmm. what was interesting is that uh, it's sort of another topic altogether but <laughs> I think that the, the the organization's headquarters was moving from Atlanta to Washington DC mm -hmm. the vast majority of the staff could not make that move they were like nope we're not moving to DC. Our families are here in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. But the organization is like, we can't be an international NGO in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. The donors are in DC and New York. So at least if you're in DC, you can take the train to New York. So mm -hmm. they were able to move. So the organization was basically scrambling to keep the international office running. And from the first day that I had gotten there, I had been building those connections. I had been reaching out to the international folks saying, what do I have to do to get a gig in your unit? Um, I had attempted to learn French, failed miserably at that, but I still kept trying, still kept pushing. Mm -hmm. So when they now decided to make this move and they had like mass resignations, truly it was, I think it was luck because I now know that I was nowhere near qualified for the job that they gave me. Mm. So, There's this girl in Delaware that's a lawyer and 
she's been, you know, she's been making, she follows up, she talks mm-hmm. to us, mm. let's interview her. And they interviewed me and they, I got the job. Mm. So I, I made the move to DC and my role was to manage their international development programs, the youth development programs, and mostly writing reports and liaising with donors. Hmm. The donors were the big development agencies, USAID, some UN agencies, things like that. So, so I figured that I was overqualified when I would go to the meetings and I'd see everybody else in the room had gray hair or had like 15 years experience. And, hmm. you know, I'm like, okay. But I took trainings. I went to, look, DC is very good about that. There were lots of trainings. So I just, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't even say I was faking it. I think mm-hmm. that I was pretty honest with some people. I go to them, I'm like, listen, uh, I have this job. Let's not talk about how I got it. Let's just talk about, <laughs> let's just talk about the fact that I'm coming to you and I'm asking you to sort of mentor me and help me be better at it. Mm-hmm. And and I was lucky I got mentors from mm. across the board that, that sort of helped me and helped me sh- show me how to navigate the international development scene. I was mm. lot of learning by, what is it, baptism by fire. Mm. Mm. But yes, all in all, if somebody asks me today, how do you get into international development? I tell them the same thing I was told. You need to make sure you speak a foreign language like French, or Spanish, or Russian, or Chinese. Ideally, French or Spanish. Mm. Probably the biggest regrets that I have is that I did not take French seriously in school. To Nigeria's credit, they did try to teach us French in primary school and secondary school. (laughs) Just just didn't stick, you know? Maybe it was the way they taught, whatever. Mm. But... I, every summer now I try to drag my children to like French immersion programs. Mm. They to everything. And I'm like, you are so going to regret this. Yes. Um, yes. But because even now in my work, it's a limitation. It's mm-hmm. definitely a limitation. And once in a while I make another effort, but I think that, you know, I'm just one of those people that languages just have a problem penetrating my skull. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny though. You made the comment um, about, you, you used the word luck, I think two or three yeah. times. And it struck me, you know, because I remember, and I have no idea where this quote was, but I have seen a quote that says, the harder you work, the luckier you get. So you, you did mention that the role that you're, you, you got, of course, you were underqualified going into the room and seeing people with gray hair and how did you get here? And you're like, well, I'm here now kind of thing. But the thing is, and I'm sure the audience can attest to this, your, your work ethic, right? It's something that you can't teach. And I think that you're just going for it and just do, making the most of every opportunity kind of led to the next one. And, you know, that's, that's yeah. just what I got from what you were saying. So, of course, you may use the word luck. And I'm not saying that um, there wasn't an element of, yeah, you know, work, luck. I don't know. I, you know but, but I do think that you, you set yourself up to be lucky 
quote unquote, if that makes sense. So um, I just think that's really interesting. And you know, but but you know what? What I'd love you to talk about next because this has been. I mean, I've, I've forgotten that we're doing an interview. I, I feel like I'm just listening to someone speak, which is awesome. But maybe Ooh. you can just talk us through your move back to Nigeria because it's so interesting. You have all this wealth of experience. So talk us through that journey. I'd love to hear about that. Okay. I think the first thing I would say about I'll move back to Nigeria is it's probably the first time I I believed, I started believing in the concept of speaking things into existence. Mm. So I have wanted to, I have, I lived in the U.S. for probably close to 25 years. Mm. My math is correct. Met my husband while I was in law school. And I remember I had said to him while I was in, while we were dating that I'd love to move back to Nigeria at some point because I feel that everything I'm learning is more useful in Nigeria. And his attitude was, yeah, I'm not there yet mentally. So I'm like, cool, no problem. Mm. And every once in a while, I'll bring it up. Um, sometimes I'd even go on interviews, right, for jobs in Nigeria. And towards the end, my husband would be like, you, you do know that you are, you are on this journey alone, right? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not there with, I'm not mentally there with you. So I stopped, right? But I used to still say it. Because I remember when we finally moved, somebody's comment to me was, oh, you've been threatening to move back to Nigeria for so long. I'm glad it's happening. Something that I had wanted to do probably since I was in law school, move back to Nigeria. Just, I just felt that, that there was more need. And I'm one of those people that every second that I was in the U.S., I made it count. Yeah. I lived at the end of the day when I left America, I had lived in seven states. Wow. I had gone. The only place I didn't do drive cross country was south the past specific states those are the only states that i never got the chance to drive cross country in but i i had a blast i i went on as many adventures as i could even ones that were very questionable mm-hmm. so that's probably why i was ready to go back so soon is that i just felt i've done i've done what i wanted to do i've reached a certain stage in my career um, but what really made us move was my husband got a job opportunity in a political appointment. Um, he was at a point in his job where he had reached the top. And he even then, even if he wanted to leave, he wasn't sure the move would be a lateral move. And he was still undecided about whether he still wanted to keep doing that particular kind of work. Mm-hmm. So... This political appointment came unsolicited. It was not something that any of us were working towards. We was not, we was not participating in any kind of association meeting. It just came out of the blue. And since I was already team any day of the week, I'm ready. I was like, bro, there's, not, there's nothing to talk about. <laughs> and I think that the two of us did not really think about the fact that the move to Nigeria, we're not moving to Lagos or Abuja. We're moving to Akwaibo. Mm. But the plus is that we, just like our parents, had also made an effort to go home often. So anytime, so I would say before we moved, we have probably gone to Nigeria three times with the kids. And mm. we had spent 99% of the time in Akwaibo. Mm. So I had even seen the changes to acquire bomb over the years. So for me, the move wasn't like this drastic move because I knew that 
there was a solid infrastructure. Mm-hmm. My main concern was, uh, am I going to find the kinds of quality schools that we have in Lagos and Abuja for my children? Mm. So my husband moved first, sort of got things, put things in place, would send me pictures of schools. He would go and meet with principals, record it, send it to me, you know. So we, we sort of did this team effort to before we finally finally made the move Mm -hmm. and I thought my main thought was it was yet again one of those things well this one I would call pure grace of God because my mindset was like I said I'm a very adventurous person so my mindset was okay we've got some savings I'm going to go to Nigeria and I am going to just start up a consulting practice do non-profit consulting and when when a business picks up, I'm going to set up a farm because that, that had been something that had also been in my mind for a while. So I go to work and I, at this time I was working for an organization, the small arm of the Department of Agriculture. And it was probably one of my best gigs in the US. Mm-hmm. I had, I was working three days in the office, two days remote, or three, mm-hmm. I think it was three days remote, two days in office. Mm-hmm. My boss was 100% remote. So I called her to give my notice and say, my family's moving to Nigeria, and which means I have to resign. She's like, no, you don't. She said, don't they have internet in Nigeria? I said, wow. uh, yes, we Yes, she's like, yeah, she's because it, you know, when I first started working with them, there was a point I had quit my job and I started consulting. So they were one of my clients Mm. and it was remote. So she's like, well, you, you, you were a consultant with us and you were remote. You did the work well. We hired you. You're remote half the time. You do the work well. I don't see what the problem is when you move to Nigeria. Just continue. Wow. So we went back to the consulting status, drew up a contract. So we went back to Nigeria, I think probably in the luckiest or best of circumstances. Because it wasn't mm. something I had orchestrated or planned or envisioned. We were going to Nigeria and our plan was more like live off our savings for a month, then line up clients and things like that. So I had actually mm. started telling clients people that I worked with in the past while moving to Nigeria, I started sort of trying to drum up work and things like that. So, um, so I was very surprised when my boss made this offer. Mm. It was somewhere like Lagos or Abuja. We were going to EU, still making the same money we were making when we were living in Northern Virginia. Amazing. So, yes. And it was sort of the same situation with my husband because he had a project that he was in the middle of managing and they said, Dude, continue managing it from Nigeria because the project is going to run out and we don't want to bring somebody else in to manage it. So the first year and a half in Nigeria, I was going back and forth, Nigeria and the U.S., because once in a while I had to go and meet with the people I was working with. But I, I had that arrangement for a year and a half and it was an awesome. It definitely lessened the blow of this huge move from Virginia to Uyo. Mm. So we, we kept at that for a year and a half. And then sort of things sort of wrapped up for both, both of us on the, on the U.S. side. But I had gotten so used to it, I simply lined up other clients. Mm. And I would say up until 
early 2019, that's what I was doing. I had some clients in Nigeria that I do capacity building where I go and meet with them, train their staff, work with them on strengthening the organization, staff capacity on writing, managing, things like that for NGOs mm. and most proposal writings. And then I still had clients in the US that I do proposal writing for. And then I was able to save enough money, convince some people to come with me together. And we started a commercial farm. We're cultivating oil palm and initially we were cultivating oil palm and cassava. But this year we've decided to diversify Hmm. and do oil palm, cassava, and some other vegetables. Um, But the big goal is to process. So we're still at least a year away from everything fully coming together, but we started. Hmm. So I have this consulting practice where I work with different NGOs, um, and then the farm, and then I've got some community projects that I'm involved with Hmm. in Aquaibom. So. So that's how I've actually been able to take the experience and sort of translate it to my environment here. This, I mean, I, I've loved this. This has been so amazing. I mean, it's so interesting, Adaku. And, you know, before yeah. as we start to wind down, though, you know, I, you know you've, you've talked us through your life, which has been so full, so rich, so amazing. And I've gotten so many different nuggets. I'd like to bring it all together by asking you, what do you consider a successful life? And the reason I ask this, because I, I think your response, and I don't know what it is, but from what you've spoken about so far, I think it's going to be really interesting. I'd love to hear what in your mind you would consider to be a successful life. It's a hard question to answer. And here's why. <laughs> I feel like a successful life is recognizing that life happens in seasons, Right. Because for you, for some people, at a certain point in time, success is career focus. And a certain point in time, it's more like family, mm-hmm. right? And, and then at a certain point in time, it's more about legacy building or something like that. Because the number one question people ask me is, are you moving back? Where, are you going to move back to the U.S.? And I'm like, at this point in time, I can't even visualize going back to America. I can't. Mm-hmm. It's not something that my brain can conceptualize mm. i can't say never yeah because i recognize that this is this is just one season and mm. i mean that's a point where it makes more sense for me to go back or whatever mm. so mm. for me i would say that success is recognizing whatever season you're in and trying to make the best out of it so for me it has been just like fully being present you know, I live in Aquaibom. Aquaibom is tremendously different from even Portacot next door. Mm. It's very quiet. It's very laid back. Mm. And a lot of people I meet don't, they just can't even process the idea of living in such a quiet place. Mm. And I've said, well, but there are things that need to be done. And I enjoy doing those things. Mm. So, so I'm, um, and, and, I, and I see so much more opportunity right, in Aquaibom. I see a lot that needs to be done. And I'm like, yes, I, I, I like building. I don't mm-hmm. want, I don't, I don't enjoy being where things are already there and you're just mm-hmm. plugging in. I, mm-hmm. like, I like participating in the building process. Mm. So for success for me is knowing the season that you're in and living it and 
trying to make the best out of it. Because mm. sometimes you don't have control over whatever season that you're in. I mean, I went, there was a season I went through of it just nothing was coming together. And um, like I had failed the bar exam and I didn't know where my relationship was heading. I just, nothing made sense. Mm. But I tried to make the best out of it, mm. right? And now this is a different kind of season. It's, mm. it's like some days are awesome. Some days are just, just like, what, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Mm. Why, why are we here? Mm. So it's a long-winded answer, but I think that no. success is is knowing that there are different seasons, and the season that you're in, you make the best out of it. Mm. and that's what I'm trying to do and I'm also a very adventurous person so I think that for me success also means being adventurous like Mm. I really go out of my way to Mm. experience something new and different I am probably the only person in this apartment that woke up and went hiking up Mm. a hill that for me is part of success is Mm. is finding a way to experience things that are sort of out of the ordinary Mm. and Mm. that's not necessarily something that other people like my husband is like i don't know what you're doing i don't know why you're doing it just be safe peace i'm not joining (laughs) it's not his definition of success Mm. he's doing these things that at least to him look like self-endangerment yeah to me it's like this is God's creation and I want yes. to experience it. Love it. Know, so love it. This this has been so amazing. For me, I I've loved this discussion. Before I let you go though, <laughs> is there mm-hmm. anything I have not asked you that you'd love to tell the audience or anything you'd love for maybe younger listeners to know? I just want to get the most out of it before I let you hang up the phone. So uh, let you, go, I'll let you go. finish it. My, one of my biggest headaches. I talk too much. I'm not really well, sure that is... I'm missing out on. <laughs> if I were to, to advise younger people, I'm just going to be like, look, don't, don't, don't allow tradition or culture or other people's mm. opinions to trap you. Um, yes. We, I mean, we live, in a, we live in a time when, where you can make mistakes and bounce back from them. It's mm. not like before where you make a mistake and you're doomed mm. um so as much as possible listen to everybody because but don't don't get caught don't get stuck that's what i would say don't get stuck don't get caught up in other what what anybody's definition of how you should live your life is really your youth is also for experimenting and learning and making mistakes but getting up mm. so don't get stuck don't allow yourself to get stuck Mm. that's what I would say to the young people I want to say a big thank you Adaku this has been I've so thoroughly enjoyed this chat I'm so glad I had you on I did too and sorry for the internet challenges we made it work though this has been awesome thank you so much Adaku thank you I told you at the beginning that you were in for a treat do you agree that this was a fascinating discussion with a strong fierce trailblazer Visit the show notes for details on the book that Adako referenced. To access the show notes, visit the website at www.theemo.com. 
please stay engaged with us. You can reach me at ugochi at theibo.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook using the handle at Ibo Initiative. Please stay healthy and safe and we will be back again soon with another episode. Thank you for listening today. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.